Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Last week we did John 3 verses 1 to 15. Uh, and this week we're going to do, uh, we're going to go back over uh, one of those verses. We'll be looking at chapter 3 and verse 8 directly. Uh, so let's go ahead and give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As far as the reading of God's Word, we're really going to be doing uh, a bit of a topical study today uh, on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, um, because we don't really focus a lot of attention on that, and it's really important. Uh, in fact, it may surprise some of you to know there's actually in the 33 chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we've got uh, one very long one on Christ, and there's actually no chapter on the Father or the Son, uh, because the, the, the Scripture teaches more indirectly. Uh, maybe about the maybe about the Holy Spirit than than the Scripture does about the Son. So we're going to look at the Spirit uh, today because uh, I, th I think it's profitable to understand He is a member of the Godhead, right? He is the third person of the Trinity. He's very important, and, and I think we would all assent and say, "Well, yes, He is." But then, if we probe further, well, what do we know about Him, or how can I back up what I what I do know about Him? Uh, we may fall a little flat, and so I'd like to begin our study today. Uh, with the words of J.I. Packer. And it's a rather long quote, but I think it sets up well the importance of this study as a whole. And if you want the whole thing later, let me know and I'll send it to you. But Packer writes, It is startling to see how differently the biblical teaching about the second and third person of the Trinity is treated. The person and work of Christ have been and remain subjects of constant debate within the, within the church. Yet, the person and work of the Holy Spirit are largely ignored. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of Christian doctrines. Comparatively few seem to be interested in it. Many excellent books have been written on the person and work of Christ, but the number of books worth reading on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, even in this charismatic era, is small. Christian people are not in doubt as to the work that Christ did. They know that he redeemed us by his atoning death, even if they differ among themselves as to what exactly this involved. But the average Christian, deep down, is in a complete fog as to what the Holy Spirit does. Some talk of the Spirit of Christ in the way that one would talk of the Spirit of Christmas, as a vague cultural pressure making for uh, friendliness and religiosity. Close quote. So he's saying... A lot of people will give give lip service to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but they don't really know what they're talking about, and they can't really be specific, and, and it will be helpful for us to study this today. And so that said, we're going to focus really on two things. Uh, first of all, the person of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, and secondly, the work of the Holy Spirit. So just to put that in other words, we're going to focus on who he is and what he does. First of all, the person of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing to note is that he is not a what, but a who. It's a he. It's a person. We confess this every time we say uh, the Nicene Creed, and it's very similar in the Apostles' Creed, uh, which we'll say this morning. 
I believe in the Holy Ghost. And then the, the Nicene Creed says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is together worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And it's important to note there that only a personal being can give life. Only a personal being can receive worship. We're not told to worship objects. We're not told to worship feelings. We're not told to worship sensory experiences, but rather a person and the Holy Spirit together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. And, and lastly, only a personal being can speak, right? Uh, that how we got our Bible in, in, a, in a very real way. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity most involved in the production of the scriptures, right? Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that holy men of God spake as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who directly inspired the biblical authors. And so only a personal being can speak. And so the, when the Bible speaks of him as being the Spirit of God, uh, this, we're, we're not suggesting that he is somehow part of God, but rather that he is uh, he is an, in, 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 he is God in the same sense. He's the Spirit of God in the same sense that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? They 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 proceed from Him or are begotten uh, of the Father in some sense, but they are no less equal to Him. They are no less eternal than Him, while being fully distinct from the Father. He proceeds from the Father and the Son while being both distinct from and equal to them. I know that's a lot to wrap your head around at 10.15 on a Sunday morning. Uh, but it's, it's important that we remember throughout this, this lesson and throughout our study of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is just as much his own person as the Father and the Son. Uh, John Owen, who's a famous Puritan theologian, he writes, The Holy Spirit is in himself a distinct, loving, powerful, intelligent, divine person. For none could do what he does, none other could do what he does. He is one with the Father and the Son. Our Lord's words at the institution of Christian baptism show us that it is our religious duty to own the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in all of our worship of God and in all of our faith and obedience. We are called to uh, obey the Spirit as he leads and as he speaks to us in the power of his word. Uh, the personhood of the Holy Spirit can be established uh, from several different biblical texts. There are many. We'll just look at a few. Uh, first, to show that he is distinct from the Father and the Son, there is the, the, uh, the baptism of our Lord Jesus. Would somebody please read uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Miss Duncan. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we have the Father speaking from heaven. We have the Son in the water, uh, either having it poured over him or dunked, whatever your uh, proclivities may necessitate. And we have the Spirit descending from above. In the form of a dove. We have the Spirit not, not being the voice from heaven, not being the sun in the water, but completely distinct from the other two members of 
the Godhead. And then to demonstrate some of his personal attributes, such as the ones we confess in the creeds, uh, his understanding, his wisdom, there's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Would somebody please read those for us? Perhaps Mr. Gamble, who zealously wanted to read the last passage, but I saw his hand second. First, and he's closed his Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Actually, Mr. Gamble, I'm going to ask you to back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, and then going through 12. It's on page 1167. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in 9, going through 12. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Those things God has revealed to us through, his, through the Spirit. Pause. So how is it that we've had these things revealed to us? Yes, it's the reading of God's Word, but most specifically, it's revealed how? Through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. The Spirit, He inspired the Word, and then He actually enlightens our minds and opens our eyes to read it, to understand it, and to believe it, and to put our faith in it. Keep going, Mr. Gamble. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who, has, who, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also the Lord comprehends the thoughts of God, ex, of God, except the spirit of God. All right. So these are, these are personal attributes that the Holy Spirit possesses. And, and Paul makes the analogy there that just as nobody uh, truly knows your thoughts, knows the intentions of your heart, God accepted, except for you. Nobody knows you quite like you know you. In the same way, no one knows the heart and thoughts and intentions of God quite like the Spirit of God, because He is God. He is personal, but He also has uh, these, these attributes of deity. Owen, again, sums it up. The Holy Spirit is not merely a quality to be found in the divine nature. He's not simply an influence or power from God. He is not the working of God's power in our sanctification. He is a holy intelligent person. It's not an accident that's happening to you as the Spirit works in your life to sanctify you. No, there's intentionality behind it. And, and it, it, it's not as if he's merely taking orders from the Father. The Father says, I want you to go and regenerate this one, and so he does, and I want you to go and sanctify this one, and so he does. That's true, but also there's a personal investment in it. Um, you know, it's, it's the same thing as like, why am I here with you guys this morning? And why am I working uh, on your behalf all week? Well, on the one hand, it's because the session called me to be your assistant pastor of youth and families. And so they've told me to love and care for you guys. And so I do. But on the other hand, it's because I actually do love and care for you guys. And so I want to do it. It's the same way with the Father sending the Spirit to save and the Spirit actually accomplishing that because of his own personal desires and love and affection for God's people. So that's that's some of his personal attributes. And it's also important to note that he is not just a person, and I don't mean that in the human sense, of course, but he is a divine person. He is God. Uh, probably the easiest passage to see the full deity of the Holy Spirit 
is Acts chapter 5, and you don't have to flip there, but I'll, I'll just give it to you from memory. You're welcome to if you want, but Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. This is the passage where uh, Ananias and Sapphira had, had sold some property, and they gave what they said was the whole of that sale to the church, but they actually kept back part of it for themselves. And Peter says, what has possessed you to do such a thing? For you have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And so Peter says, when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to no less than God himself. And of course, the divinity of the Holy Spirit is also evident in the Great Commission, where Jesus commands us to be baptized in the name, singular, one name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And one last passage that I would point to, and this one is, uh, I'll ask somebody to read this for us. Could somebody do John chapter 16 and verse 7? John 16 and verse 7. And I, I want to submit to you all that, that if the Holy Spirit is anything less than fully God, this teaching of our Lord Jesus makes no sense. It, it must be that he is fully God in every way that the Father and the Son are for this, this saying to make sense. Who's got it? Uh, Babington. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All right, so who is the helper in this context? Spirit. The Spirit. I'm not going to make the whole case for the deity of Christ at this time. I think we're all kind of bought in on that. But if Jesus is fully God, then in what way would it be conceivable that his going away and the sending of another in his place would be to your advantage unless that other was also fully God? You guys follow the logic there. Jesus is fully and totally God. He says, it's good for you that I'm going away because when I do, the helper will come. That is unintelligible. It is not at all comforting to think that God is leaving us and he's sending his assistant, right? No, he's sending his spirit. He's sending the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is fully God. I'll, I'll wrap up this portion with, with just one more quote from Owen. Owen is so good on this. Um, those of you that... Uh, well, actually, I, I don't think any of you were in the, the all-adult Sunday school class going through John Owens, the Holy Spirit. Hopefully your parents have that little Puritan paperback around. Read it, it's gold. Okay. But anyway, Owen says this. Now God requires that we believe in Christ as the only foundation and rock of the church and summons us to profess our faith in him as such. He is to be recognized and honored as we honor the Father. And all of Christ's concerns are now, in John chapter 16, committed to the Holy Spirit. God's will is that, that the Spirit should be exalted in the church and not the church, excuse me, and the church is not to be ignorant of him. So that is to say that the person of the Holy Spirit, fully divine, is now entrusted, is given to manage all of Christ's concerns, all of Jesus' cares, which are you, are ministered to and cared for by the Holy Spirit. And so that's uh, a segue, a transition into now considering the work of the Holy Spirit. What is it exactly that he does? Well, the Spirit has done uh, uh, many things, but we're going to look at specifically with respect to our salvation. 
Uh, there are three things uh, that are necessary to, to make a man ready for life with God. First of all, he must be able to know the mind and will of God so that he may please him. Right? How do you know what's pleasing to your parents? Or one day when you're married, how will you know what's, what's pleasing to your spouse? Well, you need to know how they think. You need to know what they care about, what's important to them. So if we are to live lives that are pleasing to God, we must know his mind. The Spirit helps us to do that, as we read in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, secondly, he must have a heart that gladly and freely loves God and his law. What's the problem there? We're born with hearts of rebellion. We're born with hearts of stone that are hostile to God. And we looked at this last week in Ezekiel 36 as, as explaining what Jesus meant by you must be born by the, by, the, by, the, by the water and the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit comes and he says, I will give you a new heart and I will sprinkle clean water upon you and my Spirit I will put within you. And therefore, now we are able to gladly and freely love God. And lastly, Owen notes, uh, he must be able to carry out perfectly all that God requires of him. We, as God's people, must be able to carry out the works that he has called us to do. Why? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And so the Holy Spirit gives us the, the new ability to not only know what God wants, desire to do it, but actually to then do it. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to want to do it. It's another thing, again, to actually do it. The Spirit helps us in all three of those things. And this is the, the great uh, technical theological term that we call regeneration. He makes us wholly, entirely new. And this is the work that we most closely associate with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Father is, as we've said, the architect of salvation. He uh, made the plan before the foundations of the world. The, the, the Son is the one who accomplishes the plan of salvation in coming and living the perfect sinless life and in dying uh, the wretched death that sinners deserve to die. The Spirit is the one who applies that saving work. First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 describes the Christians as those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification, that's the giving of new life of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. Chosen by the Father, set apart by the Spirit on the basis of the blood of the Son. These, are the, the, uh, the, these works are distinct from one another, but they cannot be divided. Just as the persons of the Godhead are distinct from one another, but they cannot be divided. They all three work together for that end. For the sake of time, we won't go into the shorter catechism, but I would commend to you questions 29 and 30 that speak of how we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ and uh, what is, what is, uh, the, how does the Spirit apply to us the benefits of the redemption purchased by Christ uh, in, in our effectual calling. It's very good. Uh, Paul would put it this way. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So he's speaking about Jesus, right? He's speaking about what Jesus does for us. But then Paul says, how do we receive that? 
By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who affects that change in us. And this is the same Spirit whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's Titus chapter 3 verses 4 to 6. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings about this newness of life. There's another work that the Holy Spirit is directly involved in. It's not just the regeneration. It's not just the being born again. That's what Jesus is talking about most specifically in John chapter 3. You must be born again. But after you're born again, there's the work of sanctification, right? So Jesus says in John chapter 3 and verse 8, the wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But you do know where it's working. Right? You do know when the wind is blowing. You know when you're in its, in its midst, midst, as it were. In the same way, we have no control over when and where the Holy Spirit goes, but we do see his work in the lives of those in whom he is working. And that's seen in sanctification. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.11, You were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by, so who's the one who did those things? By the Spirit of God. The Spirit leads us into all truth. And this is not just something to do with our knowledge, but also our character, which is to accord with godliness. And perhaps my favorite verse on sanctification, you'll often hear me quote this or reference it some way in my prayers, is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And that would be a, a memory verse I would show, throw out for you guys for today. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is most directly involved in our sanctification. But the Holy Spirit is involved with more than that. He, he goes all the way back. He goes all the way back to the very act of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we often think of the Father as being the primary actor in creation. The creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right? And, and, and so it is. That's appropriate. But we can also think of the Son as being active in creation, right? He is the word of God. God said, and so it was. John's gospel makes that connection very strong. In John chapter 1 and verse 3, without him, that is without the Son, was not anything made that was made. But we ought not to forget the Holy Spirit. John Owen views, and I would say correctly, that the Holy Spirit has been directly involved in the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, where it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the face of the deep. The Spirit is directly involved. But he's not merely a passive observer. Would somebody please read for us Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Mr. Johnson. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Yeah. So he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. The breath of life that's breathed into man 
after he was formed of the dust, that word for breath in the Hebrew, it's the same word for the spirit, the ruach. It's the same in, it's the same in, in, in Greek as well, not that that matters for this study, but the, the, the spirit of, of life was breathed into man. And this may sound like a stretch to some, but when paired with, with Elihu's words in Job 33.4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit of the Almighty gives me life. This view is confirmed. The Holy Spirit is actively involved in granting the gift of life. And so when the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. That's the Holy Spirit that he's speaking of. Yes, he's speaking of God generally, but the Spirit specifically. He grants us life, he grants us regeneration, and then he grants us sanctification. This is all the work of God's Spirit in your life. There's a few other kind of miscellaneous things that I want to look at with you all this morning before we end. The you live in a day and a time where there's many teachers on television, but I don't. I would be surprised if y'all are following these guys. But that, that speak of uh, speak of the Holy Spirit in, in ways that are, are not helpful, right? There's there's the whole charismatic movement. There's the whole continuationist movement where people expect that they can manipulate God's spirit to 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 do to do miracles in the moment. Um, there's all kinds of false teachers like that on the internet as well. Uh, and, and I mean, has anyone here ever been to a charismatic worship service? God bless you all. That was the most uncomfortable couple hours of my life, um, because people think that the, the work of the Holy Spirit means things like speaking in unintelligible tongues and and falling down in the middle of worship services and all these other strange, bizarre things. Uh, what we see from the Bible, though, is something very different. Something very different. And we'll get to this um, eventually, when we, Lord willing, when we get to the upper room discourse in John 14 through 16. The work of the Holy Spirit, what is most evident that the Spirit is at work in someone's life is, is in that passage, John, but it's also in John chapter 3. When we talked about this last week, it's that, that we're growing in a love for the Word of God. Jesus says that, that you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. You have not received my testimony. Why? Because the Spirit's not working you. But if those who receive the testimony of God's word are those who are being moved and, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And those who lift up the name of the Lord Jesus and look to him for strength in times of distress, for strength in times of sadness, who look to him for forgiveness and life, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is what he does. Jesus says in, in the Upper Room Discourse, He will bring to your mind all things that I have said to you. So when you're in a time of struggle, when you're in a time of sadness and trial, and they come often, especially the older you get, and you start to remember passages of Scripture that, that you learned as a child, you start to remember passages of Scripture that you heard preached from the pulpit of this church or, or another like-minded church, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And, and we should thank Him and, and praise Him for that. And, and maybe considering all of these things is, is something we don't do enough. But for those of you that are going into the 11 o'clock worship service, you have the opportunity to enjoy and appreciate these things afresh. Because it is by the Spirit of God that we are able to worship God. That He works through our hearts and our singing 
uniting us to the truths that we're professing. He works in our hearts as we're praying, leading us what to pray for. He works in our hearts through the ministry of his word, that the whole thing that we're about to do in worship is empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for your love for us. We thank you for sending the Spirit, who we do not consider as often as we should. I pray, Lord, that while this has been a lot of information for these dear young people, that it would be helpful for them, and that you would be pleased to work through it, that they would know the power of the Spirit that brings life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.